You're listening to the Philly Young Adults Podcast. First Corinthians 15, 58. Let's read it and then we'll, we'll pray. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you. I thank you, Lord. We need to thank each other, but we all thank you, Lord. So many of us can look back over the last 10 years, I know, just talking to a few people before this started, Lord. Think of all the things that have happened in the last few years. And you've been faithful. You're, all, you're still faithful, Lord. Thank you for getting us through. Thank you for never leaving us. Thank you for not giving up on us, Lord. And we thank you for your word, faithfully spoken into our issues, Lord, our chaos, our darkness, faithfully bringing light, faithfully bringing order and life and peace and direction and strength, Lord, and most of all, your presence. We thank you that in your word, we're hearing your voice. You are there. You're speaking, Lord. And tonight, I pray that you would do that. Again, as I always pray, Lord, help me not to get in the way. Thank you for all the Monday nights when I begged you for help feeling like I was not connected in the right way to be able to do this. And you helped and you showed up, Lord. I just thank you. It's a testimony to your faithfulness. All the, I don't know how many hundreds of prayers you answered, Lord. And I drive home at 11 at night and just thank you, Lord. And we pray you do it again tonight. Everything good comes from you, Lord. So speak your word to us. We need it. There's much bigger things going on in our lives and in the world than me, Lord, and young adults. We know that your word touches us eternally, Lord, where we need to be spoken to, Lord. We pray you do that tonight. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So uh, I thought of this verse when I was thinking of this study, and it's the kind of verse that I think it's appropriate to really work with to try to hear everything in there. You know when you have a verse that just starts blessing you? And one of the things, hope, hopefully you develop this reflex, you you're like, this, this is speaking to me. One of the things I do then is almost slow down and like, I want to, I want to pick it apart, not to kill it. I don't want to dissect it, but I want to, I want to stare at it and make sure I see everything there or even better. I want to hear everything God is saying in that verse. So I want to do that a little bit tonight with this verse. Uh, I think it's a good verse to, to sit with. But the first thing that I notice about this verse, I want to notice with you, is the first word, right? The word therefore is the first word of 1 Corinthians 15, 58. And that means that this, this charge, this encouragement that Paul's giving is given in response to the things that he's just written. That's what the word therefore means. In response to what I've just written, now here's what you should do. And actually, it's interesting. I had never done this before, but if you go to a, a Bible word search program, you type in the word therefore, you can kind of read 1 Corinthians this way. There's a, all these therefores where he sort of gives a series of like quick, th- therefore, based on the last two chapters or whatever, here's what you need to do. And this is one of them. Um, 
So you go, what did he just write? What led him to say this verse? And I think really it's the whole of chapter 15. And so let's look at now chapter 15 together to see what got Paul to the place where he would give this encouragement, this exhortation, this charge to the Corinthian church. And so if you don't mind reading a little bit with me, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, let's read the first few verses of this chapter. Uh, And the first thing Paul is going to write about is the gospel, is the message of Jesus. Christ died for our sins, he was buried, and he rose. And as we read now, notice the emphasis on the fact that that Christ rose. So he says this, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you. So again, if you're not familiar, Paul was a traveling evangelist, an early Christian leader. He traveled the Roman Empire, and he stopped mostly in big cities, and he would tell people about Jesus, and often Christian communities would form right then and there. And then he would stay there for a little while and teach them all he could about what it meant to be a follower of Jesus in sometimes a few weeks, sometimes he would stay for a year or two years, and then he would move on. And so he's writing to them to remember that time when he was there telling them, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, uh, the Christian, you know, followers of Christ at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. Some had already died by the time this letter was written. Verse 7, after that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, Paul writes, as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preached, he says, and so you believed. So again, you notice verse 4, the the emphasis on the resurrection. Verse 4, he rose again. Uh, Verse 5, he was seen by Peter. Verse 6, he was seen by over 500 brethren. Verse 7, he was seen by James, by all the apostles. Verse 8, he was seen by me. This big part of Paul's message here. And Paul says, I and the other apostles preach that Jesus died for our sins and rose again. And and that is the, the gospel. That's the gospel. And one way to say it would be, It's the good news that Jesus died for our sins and rose again. That's actually good news that Jesus died for our sins and rose again. It's the news that everybody needs to hear. And that's why Paul went around and the other apostles, they went around preaching that news. That's why they they gave their lives to spread this message, this particular message. Because in the year 55 AD, probably around when this is written, with the Roman Empire holding everything in the grip of a kind of military paganism, and sin and commercialism running rampant through the world they were living in. And if you study the times, and a lot of you have, and slavery and economic inequality and idolatry permeating everything, that's what it was like to live there at that time. Paul knew that the one answer was the message that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again from the dead. He didn't waste time trying to bring down the Roman imperium. 
He, he didn't rant against the evil that was all around him of his day. He didn't sink into apathetic self-indulgence and just try to carve out a nice life in some corner of, you know, Asia Minor or something with whatever he could get for himself. No, he followed the example of Christ. He focused his efforts on making sure he could sustainably spread the one thing that was the actual solution to the world's problems. And it's, it's so crazy and counterintuitive. But the solution to the world's problems is the message that Jesus died for our sins and rose again from the dead, right? It was true in 55 AD. It was true 100 years later as the gospel spread across North Africa. And after that, as it spread across Europe and into China within the first six, 700 years and into India even sooner than that. And it's true today, right? Where on every continent, Christians native to those cultures right now today are living, speaking testimonies to the power of the same message. I picked up a book off the used book table or the book, whatever that book table is out there, written by Chinese, uh, I think, pastors with messages to the church. And I've been going through it part of my morning. It's awesome, right? Translated, these people are not even in the slightest American. They have a lot to say, right? Uh, all over the world. And it's true that this gospel is the solution right here in our country. It's true, no matter what anyone says. The answer to all our problems is the message that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose again from the dead. And I think Paul wanted to make sure that the Christians in Corinth actually never forgot that, that, that they didn't lose track of what mattered in the middle of confusing times. They didn't start to think that the gospel didn't matter anymore just because so many people were ignorant of it, never heard of it before, or so many people got offended by it, just made so many people angry, this message, right? And it seems like both of those things were true in their day. How many different ways can we say it? This was just impressing me as I, as I was reading this and thinking about tonight. The fact that Jesus died for our sins means that we can finally be free from all of our guilt, that our past doesn't have to define us, that the mistakes we've made aren't the final word, and that all the ways we've offended God and dishonored him and, and even dishonored the life, the gift of life that he gave us, that all of that doesn't have to crush us, the weight of all of that, Guilt doesn't have to crush us for all eternity, that Christ died for it all, and that all of it died with Christ. I just, you read 1 Corinthians 15, and, and, and you go, we have the message of freedom that the world needs. They don't know they need it, as you well know, but the weight of sin on everyone's back is the thing that's crushing them. The weight of our sin is what's ruining our cities and our government and our environment and our families and our relationships and our bodies, everything. It's, that's what it is. We don't know that, right? We're, everyone's trying to figure out what's wrong. It's sin, isn't it, friends? The weight of sin is crushing everyone. And Satan has duped them. The last thing he wants them to think about is their sin. Now think about Rihanna, but don't think about sin. Right? I mean, it's all good. Thanks. One more time, brother. <laughs> Got to get it in. But don't think about sin, right? But that's what's crushing everybody. And when you draw near to God, you wake up emotionally. And you wake up mentally. And you wake up spiritually. And you start to care about what's going on around you. A lot of you know that. You've gone through that metamorphosis just in the last few years. You're like, I care now. I didn't used to care. Except about myself, right? We all know what that's like. And God wakes you up to the fact that he's the real solution. And the Holy Spirit then 
you know this, a lot of you, he, he lifts up Christ in your mind and you start to see that really everyone just needs Jesus. And they, and they need to know that Jesus died for their sin. And also, this passage says, they need to know that Jesus rose from the dead. The death of our sin, as awesome as it is, is only part of the good news. The fact that, that, that our past can be covered under the blood of Jesus and we can be free of it, as awesome as that is, it's only half the story. The other half is this. After Jesus died, he lived. I think I said it a few minutes ago. I was thinking about it. After Jesus died, he lived. After he hung on the cross, he walked on the earth again. After they, they hid him in the darkness of the tomb, they saw him again. That's what this passage says. And then they kept seeing him. And, he, and they touched him. And he cooked them breakfast. And he sat there and ate with them. That, I think, is the coolest one I wish I could have been at. And he taught them for 40 days, it says. And he proved to them beyond a shadow of a doubt, his, his followers, his first followers, that he was alive, physically, truly alive, with a new, better human life, one that can never again be defeated and will never die gospel, right? Good news. That's good news. And it seems like as Paul wrote this, the Holy Spirit wanted to lean hard on the resurrection part of the message for the first, for the Corinthian church who was getting this letter. Maybe that's what the Corinthians in particular needed at this time. It seems like it. If you look at verse 12, look at verse 12. He says to this church, now if Christ is preached that he's been raised from the dead, how do some among you, in other words, why are some among you saying that there's no resurrection of the dead? Why is that little weird belief? Like some of you looked up this weird website that said there was no resurrection in Corinth. Just a joke, right? Everyone knows the internet wasn't invented then. But why? You, but there were conspiracy theories back then too. You don't need the internet for that. You don't, need weird belief, you don't need the internet for weird beliefs, right? So there's a weird belief in the church. There's no resurrection of the dead. Maybe the really spiritual people were saying that. I don't know. Right, Verse 13, but if there's no resurrection from the dead, Paul says, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ isn't risen, then our preaching is empty, he says, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we're found false witnesses of God because we've testified of God that he raised up Christ. You see what Paul's saying? If there's no resurrection from the dead, then we're just going around lying to people. For He says, verse um, I got rats. We've testified of God that he raised up Christ. Here we go. Whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. Verse 16. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ isn't risen. And if Christ isn't risen, your faith is futile. Super important verse. And you're still in your sins. Then also, those who've fallen asleep in Christ, the brothers and sisters who've already died, have perished. They're gone. It's over. If in this life only, if Jesus only helps us in this life, right, like, if it's all fake, at least I go to the grave happy. You hear that kind of stuff all the time. I think someone said it like 1,800 years ago. But that's actually not what Paul says, right? Paul says, no. Because the Christian life doesn't make you happier. It doesn't, it doesn't give you a better life necessarily. I mean, it it will make you more joyful. Well, some of you are like, what? Right. It will help you emotionally, but it doesn't, it doesn't just give you a beautiful life. That's not what the gospel does. Paul says, uh, to speaking about himself, if all we have is this life, you, sh- you should feel bad for us. That's what verse 19 says, right? We are of all men most pitiable. It's crazy to me, if you look at this, how much Paul hung everything on the absolute reality of Jesus's victory over death. 
If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, the whole Christian message is stupid and no one should give it a second thought. Paul said it. It's in the Bible. Certainly, no one should base their lives on it, according to this passage. That's what Paul wrote. And when you tell people about Jesus, you never have to worry that you're trying to sell them something that's not real, right? That's, that's not the kind of thing we're doing here as believers. And in verse 20, Paul just says it straight. Right in the middle of verse 20, Christ is risen from the dead. And then he goes right there into some detail about how that works, how that worked and what, what it all means. Because the Christian message, if you scan your eyes over that passage, is about things that really happened, because that's true, then you can examine those things and what they mean and how they worked. How did that work when Jesus was risen from the dead? You can go into all kinds of detail if God gives it to you in his word, from all kinds of angles. And from verses 20 then to 28, Paul explains that the resurrection of Jesus is the absolute guarantee that in the end, Jesus will have total victory. Look at verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ the first fruits, he's the first one. And after those who are Christ's at his coming, the resurrection of the rest of the Christians will happen when Christ comes. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, right? Anyone that opposes him. For he must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy, this is one of the coolest verses ever. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. It's a shame some people only read it in Harry Potter because it's not fantasy. Isn't that awesome? maybe the most powerful moment in that whole book why because it's real because it's real the last think about that the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death for he has put all things under his feet but when he says all things are put under him it's evident that he who put all things under him is accepted what's he talking about verse 28 now when all things are made subject to him then the son him himself will also be subject to him the father who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. If that confuses you, hang out with God and get to know him. And you'll be like, you are bigger and cooler than I ever thought, God. Right? And evidently, as Paul wrote this letter, the Holy Spirit knew that this kind of, I got to say it one last time, this kind of cosmic victory language is actually what the Corinthians needed. They needed this kind of language, right? And I think tonight he knows that it's what we need too. I think he knows that it's what we need in 2023. And so many people are angry and tired and anxious and depressed when everyone's scared, most of all, of death. Why are people scared of balloons? That's low-hanging fruit, but why are they? Because they're scared of death, right? If I wasn't scared of death, I wouldn't be scared of balloons from across the ocean. And God knows that what the world needs And this letter is the word of God to us. God knows what we need. And this letter is speaking into us, just like it spoke into the Corinthian fellowship. First of all, the world needs for Christians to embrace the gospel and let it get into their bones like never before. Nothing can dethrone Christ. He will reign until he has expelled death from his kingdom. 
And nothing can kill Christians. Nothing can stop the gospel. That truth can fundamentally change the way a person sees the world and experiences it. And the rest of this chapter talks about the parts of this truth that the Corinthians needed to grapple with, evidently. And so Paul's like, he's in the, he's in the ring with them, trying to get them to see certain things. And I think we can assume that we need to wrestle with these things too. For instance, look at verse 32. Well, Paul, Paul seems to quote a common saying from his day that the Corinthians knew. Maybe the Corinthians were saying this. But he said, if the dead do not rise, what you, some of you in your church are saying, then he quotes the saying, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And that statement could be a motto of our times, right? The motto of your generation and my generation and the boomers. That's why they'll move to Florida, right? And all of us. That's our culture right there in that verse. But notice what Paul does here. He says, sure, that motto makes total sense if the dead do not rise. That is what we should do, I guess. If the dead don't rise, then Jesus never rose. And then if Jesus never rose, Paul says, then we're still guilty for all our sin. And maybe it's all fake. So what's left? I guess party and death, Paul says. But Christ is risen from the dead. So that way of thinking no longer works because death isn't really that big of a deal anymore, Paul says. And if you let death dominate your thoughts and you spend your time pushing it to the background of your mental space by pursuing pleasure, that's what our countries, that's what's going on in our culture, guys. Death is dominating everyone's thoughts. And so because they've forgotten that the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. That's not part of our culture anymore, Right? And so everyone is just trying to push that into the background by pursuing pleasure. But if, if you do that, if you do nothing in your life except eat and drink and die, then you'll miss out on life. That's what Paul says. You'll miss out on sharing in the victory that Jesus won over death. And you'll miss, over what the, you'll miss out on what that means. Eternal life in his kingdom forever. And Paul wanted this truth, I think, impressed on the Corinthian consciousness. He knew that they needed it. And he knew that it would bear good good fruit, the kind of fruit that, that frees, freed them up, would free them up from, from life, sorry, the life-killing idea that we should live for the pleasure of the moment because death is the end. That idea that evidently was there in Corinth, he knew that, that this would free them from that. And so even when life is difficult and believers face all kinds of suffering, because we do, God sustains us with this knowledge. Weakness and suffering and death are never the last word because Jesus rose from the dead and we will too. We will too. And the resurrection from the dead, the new kind of life that God will give us, will fix all the problems that we've battled with in this life just as surely as it fixed the crucifixion, the problem of the crucifixion for Jesus. Think about what a problem that was in his life. I just got crucified. But the resurrection fixed it. Notice verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, right? Sown like a seed put into the ground. That's the idea, right? If you're missing the metaphor, sown into the ground like you sow a seed, right? The body. Sown in weakness, raised in power, verse 44. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. I got no clue what that means, but that's what Paul says, except that Jesus' resurrection shows us what it means, right? It is raised a spiritual body, 
And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. And then Paul writes, the last Adam, Christ, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual body is not first, but the natural, the one we have right now. And afterward, the spiritual body. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. That's why I said you can get detailed about things that are real. So you could study this on your own. These things are awesome. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. That is us, right? And as is the heavenly man, that is Christ in his resurrection, so also those who are heavenly, that is those who've trusted Christ. Look at verse 49. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, the one we were born with, we shall also bear the image of Jesus Christ resurrected, the heavenly man. So no matter what happens, here's the destiny for every believer in Christ to bear his image. The, not, the, the image of the raised human, Jesus, to be given a physical, eternal humanity like his physical, eternal humanity, no longer limited by decay, no longer dust, but heavenly, Paul says. I think it's so easy to get so weighed down and discouraged by all the dust and decay all around us. But God wants these words to lift us up out of that discouragement. You read things like this, and it focuses our minds in a good way and helps us remember, like the things that we need to remember. And Paul wanted the Corinthians to remember one more aspect of all this. The fact that the world, uh, as they knew it, could change at any time. That's on Paul's mind here too. This is on the mind of the Spirit. The world as they knew it could change at any time. It isn't just that we don't have to fear death anymore. It's even better than that. When you look at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, you see that God wants us to know that the right way to move through our lives in this world is to remember that we aren't necessarily even supposed to expect to live out our lives and go through physical death. This is so weird. It's not even just that we don't fear death anymore. We don't even necessarily have to expect to die. You want to talk about something that sounds crazy, right? That, this is what he's saying. That might not be how it all plays out for us. Of course, like death could come to any of us at any time. It could come on the way home tonight. We all know this, right? But Christians should actually live expecting something else, not death, but the return of Christ. This is game-changing. And because Jesus rose from the dead, when he returns to conquer evil and set up his kingdom, the most amazing thing will happen. Those who are alive then, when that happens, will get to skip death completely. This is what the Bible says. This is not fringe cult doctrine. If you don't know this, this is basic Christian doctrine. Those who are alive when Christ returns will get to skip death completely. And as Paul says it here, will simply be changed. We'll experience a transformation. And our bodies will be changed into the same kind of body that Jesus rose from the dead with. It's one of the reasons you need to read the end of the gospel so you can see what it'll be like. An eternal body. A body that can never die. A resurrection body. Now look at verse 50. He says, Now this I say, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption, right, decay, inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Not all of us are going to die, Paul says. But, but dead or alive, he's going to say, we will be changed, verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, meaning you can never decay again, and we shall be changed. It's crazy. Paul expected to experience it. And 
I don't think that we're supposed to be like, oh, well, he was wrong. That was like 2,000 years ago. I think the Holy Spirit is giving him to us as a model. This is how we should talk. It's not only that we don't have to fear death, which is awesome enough. It's that we don't even have to expect it. We're all very realistic as believers. We know it could come. I don't, I don't know if I have tomorrow. The Bible teaches me to say that, right? Anything could happen. But I don't have to live expecting it. And that should be the dominant note. Actually, I didn't finish it, did I? Verse 50, I want to finish this. So good, I'm getting all caught up. Verse 54. So when this corruptible has put on corruption, and when this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I think this should be the dominant note of the Christian life. Not disappointment at the setbacks we face. Not anger at the state of our country. Not bitterness over our letdowns. Triumph because Christ rose from the dead. Joy because he's coming back soon. Hope because death is swallowed up in his victory. And then out of all that, You see where we got to now. Out of all that, out of everything we just read, Paul gives the Corinthians what their takeaway should be from this. Paul says, if you've heard me say, verses 1 through 57, if you've gotten what I've laid down, what should be your takeaway? What's the application? A good teacher of the Bible shouldn't really have to labor to find it. I'm not calling myself a good teacher. I'm just saying, wherever you go in life, find someone that knows how to read it off the page. You see, it's right there, right? It's not rocket science, guys, as Trevor always likes to say. What's the takeaway from the fact that the resurrection of Christ is real? It's verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And this is all I want to leave you with tonight. Nothing else that happens this year. No news story, no conspiracy, no international development, no war. If it comes, no sickness. Nothing should impact our headspace and shape what we do with our time. Like the truths in 1 Corinthians 15. You gather up all that Paul wrote. And in verse 58, the Holy Spirit says, Is all this true? If it is, then here's how a Christian responds. Therefore, first, there's, there's at least two therefores here. First, he says, be steadfast and immovable. Those two words mean set firmly on a solid foundation, steadfast. They're really two halves of the same coin, right? And the second one means unable to be shifted or changed, immovable. If it's true that Christ died, rose, if it's true, sorry, that Christ died for our sins and rose again from the dead, and it's true that death has no more victory over us and that we can live expecting Jesus to return and give us this eternal existence at any time. If that can happen tonight, then nothing should move us anymore. That's what Paul says. Nothing should freak us out or make us doubt or make us leave the path of following Jesus. Not everybody makes it out of their 20s a follower of Christ. You know that, right? But that doesn't have to happen to anybody. It's not fated for you to walk away from Christ. Never believe that. Quite the opposite. Nothing should make us scared to speak the truth. Nothing should make us ashamed of the gospel. Nothing should make us let go of the truth or forget it. 
In short, nothing should make us stop talking about and hoping in and living in the light of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And therefore, this would be the second one, he says, always be always abounding in the work of the Lord. And maybe, actually, that's the best explanation of what Paul actually meant when he said, be steadfast and immovable. What does it look like when Christians are rock solid in their confidence in Jesus' resurrection and all that it means? It looks like Christians doing the work that God wants done. And it looks like Christians doing that work regardless of anything that wants to discourage them from doing that work. And that means, too, that Christians won't spend their time, we just read it, eating and drinking and living just to enjoy themselves like everyone else, like nothing beyond death matters. And this is because the resurrection of Jesus means that there's real work to do now. It doesn't make this life less meaningful. The time is short, and God's work is always worth it, Paul says. The resurrection of Jesus means that life matters now. We'll give an account for what we do with it. We can't sink into the same sense that nothing matters, like so many people around us. And the more that thought takes hold in people's minds, the more it ruins everything. It's why things are the way they are. But the truth is, because Jesus rose from the dead, now nothing can take away the significance and the eternal meaning of the work of the Lord. It's not in vain. So what does God want for this year? You know, what does he want from your 20s? A lot of you saw most of it to live. He wants nothing to move you. And he wants nothing to stop you from doing his work. And what does he want for the small slice of your life that is the Young Adults Fellowship right here? What does he want for this? He wants this group to abound in the work of the Lord. He wants to do things with this group in 2023 and beyond that that he hasn't done yet. He definitely wants new things to happen. This is a great time to be alive. You should should feel that. And when you read the Bible, you should feel that. This is a great time to be alive. Jesus is coming back soon and the Holy Spirit is with us to empower us to do everything he's calling us to do. And so... If, if I could leave you with something here, as we get ready to pray for Jim and Josh and Dan, like I said we would, and for, and for this group moving forward, I want to leave you with this. Seek the Lord with his word open right in front of you and your ears open to, to his voice in his word and ask him to guide you into doing all the work that he has for you. There are good things to do all around us. And it may be that in the days ahead of us, there's more work to do specifically in response to the kinds of difficult things that are happening all around us. Because one of the things that I think comes into focus when you read this chapter is that when things get difficult, the response of believers should not be to withdraw just to protect ourselves. And we all know that temptation, right? When things get difficult, the response of believers should not be just to withdraw to protect ourselves, but to respond by doing the work of the Lord. I think that's what Paul's saying here. And I think with the breakdown of community and real human relationships all around us, the breakdown of like real neighborhoods, right? I think we're going to need to lean into the work of building up the Christian community and inviting others in. I think a lot of you have already begun doing that. I think a lot of us are going to need to lean into that because the world has nothing like what, what the Christian family has, or at least what the Christian family can have, Right? I think with the false gospels spreading through our universities, false gospels dominating our schools and our media, false messages of hope, false narratives about the best way forward, 
I think we're going to need to be even more intentional about going around and speaking the actual good news about the death of Jesus for sin and his resurrection. I think that with the breakdown of competency in society in general, you see it all around you, it's only going to accelerate. I think we'll have to lean into works of mercy and generosity as a testimony to the power of the gospel because Christians are still going to be working hard and building things and shepherding families and loving their communities and starting businesses, right? And stewarding those things. Christians are still going to be doing that as long as the electricity stays on. And then I guess even if it doesn't, we'll figure out how to do it, right? By the power of the Holy Spirit. Christians are going to keep doing those things. And I think with the spread of overt spiritual darkness that's coming right now, overt demonic activity, it's out, it's, it's out there, right? It's flooding in. Christians are going to need to be even more intentional about seeking the power of the Holy Spirit to bear his fruit and do his work through us. The work of the Lord in 2023. He's calling every one of us to be abounding in it. And that may mean new things for you this year. I don't know. I don't know what the Lord has for each one of us. I encourage you to pray over this verse. That would be a great response to this passage. Pray over this verse. And I encourage you too, if God leads you in this direction, I encourage you to throw your weight into...